Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, it's Andy Bueller, high school sports reporter and host of the Scorebook Live Today podcast. So the coronavirus has shut down schools and halted high school sports, but we're taking things up a notch in hopes to help during this time of great uncertainty. Each day, we're releasing a special episode of this podcast called Dickow's Quarantine Series, where our own Dan Dickow interviews an expert in their respective field, from coaches to trainers, authors to uh, former standout athletes. Subscribe to this podcast for free, and please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep everyone safe by washing your hands and following the governor's stay-at-home mandate. We're just as excited for high school sports to return as you are. Here's Dan Dickow after a word from our sponsor. Are you a small business impacted by the coronavirus? Washington Federal is here to help. Washington Federal is a proud sponsor of Scorebook Live, and it's offering a five-year business line of credit with 90 days interest for free to businesses that have seen a 10% or greater drop. Apply now to receive up to $200,000 on business lines of credit. The folks at Washington Federal understand small businesses may need an emergency loan. They're doing their best to help during this global pandemic. If you're a small business owner who needs help, head to wafdbank.com to apply. Questions? Email business.lifeline at wafd.com. Dan Dickow, Scorebook Live, Washington. Today's podcast uh, with our daily release during our quarantine series due to all the uncertain circumstances across the country and the world. Uh, We've got a unique uh, guest on today's episode in the fact that as our our audiences, there's a lot of high school coaches, players, um, and parents, is a tremendous college coach who had an amazing amount of success at the high school level. Uh, the head coach at Alabama, Nate Oates. Nate, appreciate you joining. How's everything going in the South today? Yeah, it's a little warmer down here than where I grew up or where I was used to living. But so at least with the coronavirus, we can get out on the lake as a family occasionally. So not bad. Busy days on the phone trying to recruit. I said, though, it's, it's really not the worst thing. Like, we're doing all this recruiting. Usually I'd be flying all over the country. Now, you, you know, you're grounded. So at least I get to have family dinners at home at night, and we're still getting still getting kids to pop and commit. So as long as we can play a football game at the end of August, we'll be all right here. Oh, man, I, I'm sure uh, the, the football stadium down there will be ready to go once everything is cleared up and in, um, in back to normal. When you look at yourself as a young student athlete in high school and you're, you've got an opportunity to move on and play at the next level, which you did at the Division three level in Wisconsin, did you always feel that you were going to take your playing career and extend that into becoming a coach? Or how did your coaching path come to be? Yeah, it's a good question. I, somewhere about ninth or 10th grade when I realized I wasn't going to be able to keep playing for, for a living, I figured the next best thing to do would be to coach for a living. So kind of somewhere in that, uh, eight, you know, when you're in junior high and you still think everything's possible and you can go play in the NBA, you're, you're doing all that. When, when you're not getting recruited at Division One level, you're probably not going to go play uh, 
in the NBA. So, you know what, I figured the next best thing to do would be to coach. So I started getting into the whole coaching side of basketball really back in high school. Kind of fell in love with the game back in elementary, junior high, and I thought it'd be the next best thing to plan. So you go to, during your college years, um, pretty good player from from what I could gather on the internet. Now I, everybody either downplays or overplays their success. During that time, did you have a coach uh, at, at the college level that kind of uh, pushed you into becoming a, a coach, maybe added a, a position or included you on their staff? Or, or how did that come about? Because we have a lot of high school players um, that, that – we cover in the state of Washington or listen to our podcast that, you know, their long range goal is to be a, is a coach. And so everybody's path is unique. Did, how did yours transition from the playing to the coaching? Yeah. So I had kind of a really unique situation. So my, my dad's a professor. He's got his PhD in theology. The school's called Maranatha Baptist. So I grew up in that town. They had a prep school at Maranatha Academy that was associated with the college. I went to the high school so I knew the college coach. I got there. I played a lot. You know, me and him had got pretty close. Jerry Terrell was his name. He's a really good guy. He's since uh, passed away. But he got me into really – I mean, shoot, I was kind of following the college team when I was in high school and associated with it. Then he got me in. I was working camps when I was in college. And then he offered me, you know, as soon as I was done playing, do you want to be an assistant? You know, it's a volunteer spot at that time. So I, I jumped right in. I spent three years with him. He let me do a lot, really got me going in the coaching side of it. And then I realized, you know, I needed to move up a little bit. So I, then I went and got a uh, assistant job at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, a, a lot of higher level Division three school, and spent two years there. But, yeah, I, Coach Terrell kind of got me into the coaching. And then from there, I, you know, when I took the high school job at Romulus, after five years being a Division three assistant, I uh, – that was – in Michigan, I'd worked Michigan State camps as a Division three assistant. When I was a Division three assistant, I just tried to network everywhere I possibly could. I worked five-star camps. I went and worked all kinds of different college camps, Michigan State being one of them. So I had that connection when I got to Detroit area. You know, I used to go up to Michigan State as often as I could. And I, Izzo was great. He's great with all the high school coaches in that state. So I, I learned a lot watching their practices as much as I could and learned a lot how to treat High school coaches, like we're, our practices are open to high school. Co We've had coaches fly from Texas up to Buffalo to watch us. Now they come to Alabama. So I'm, I'm a guy that wants to bring high school coaches in because of everything that people did for me when I was a high school coach. You know, I met you for the first time uh, at the NCAA tournament. I believe it was in Boise where your Buffalo team um, had a tremendous first-round victory. And then you gave Arizona all they could handle. Um, and I remember in a lot of my uh, prep reading different articles about your program and a little bit about your past, there was a, a article that I remember about your high school years, and you took over the Romulus job just outside Detroit, and I think it talked about how you, you built the program by fundraising in different ways to be able to provide more opportunities with equipment and apparel. Uh, maybe some out-of-state tournament trips for your kids uh, that I think a lot of high school coaches in this current day and age, you know, could learn from. Can you share a little bit about how you built that program and maybe that story, if it was correct? Yeah, so I, I think I know the uh, article 
that that you read that talked about me selling the hot Cheetos and all that stuff. Like, yes. But uh, yeah, that that. So I think that was Pete Thamel that wrote that. It was actually, I mean, it was it was all factual. It was right, but so they all have a little different angle they want to take on my story. And I wouldn't trade. I'll say this: I got to you know a high major head coach in Division One a lot different than probably anybody else. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think the time I spent in Detroit with all those kids gave me a background that most people don't have. So I think it's, I think it's great the way that I came up and it's different than everybody else. And I love the way that I was able to get here. But yeah, if we go back to when I took over the high school job at Romulus, I walked in, a, a teammate of mine at Maranatha had taken a job back at Romulus, an African-American kid that me and him had gotten really close. Ed Horn was his name. He went back home to Detroit where he was from, got a teaching job, job opens. He convinces me. He really gets me hired, to be honest with you. So I walk in there. Our first year, I still remember, we lose 48-35 in the district uh, to the rival Belleville. We scored 35 points in high school game. It was ridiculous. It was embarrassing. It was bad. Like, we, we had one kid committed to Michigan, and we just didn't have anybody else that was skilled enough to go make a play for themselves. So we – started we, we had to get better we started coming at 6 a.m first that second year as a coach we started these 6 a.m workouts so we had two kids show up for that first year we, we had to get more shooting on the team so I, I did some fundraisers the booster club paid for half I paid for half we bought a shooting machine you know the uh, the gun the shoot away yeah so we got guys in the morning shoot went after school we just started doing tons of player development it kind of formed my philosophy of how I want to coach even now, we're going to spend, you know, all these hours in the gym with these kids. I'm not going to turn them into robots. So we play free-flowing. We were third in the country in scoring this year at Alabama. We've been top five in the country in scoring the last three years, the last two at Buffalo and now. So we we play open. Guys, we still – it's all about skill development, in my opinion. So – but by the time I left Romulus, we – uh we, I left there with six shooting machines. So they got six guns at Romulus now. We started with zero. I left with six. We had athletes there. I mean, they had athletes. We just had to turn them into basketball players. So as you know, you, you made a pretty good living shooting the ball. Like if you, if you can shoot, you can, you can play up, you know, up a level from what you probably should. So we developed a bunch of shooters and probably turned a bunch of D3 kids into D2 kids, some D2 kids into Division One kids, and won a lot of games in the process. I love the fact that you, you came in with zero shooting machines and left with six. That's phenomenal. Uh, but something I also want to ask you about, you, you touched on um, your time as a coach at different levels and, and Tom Izzo's openness to allowing high school coaches into practices. Uh, when I've been interviewing many coaches for this series, regardless of the level that they're at, things keep coming back to – a network of relationships that they've developed a lot of times leads to their next opportunity. It's not necessarily a job that you seek out. It's somebody seeks you out for it and it becomes a great fit. You were at Romulus, Bobby Hurley, correct me if I'm wrong, was recruiting one of your players at some point you developed a relationship and that's how you got your start in college basketball. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. So so me and my assistant, Josh Baker, so I had a point guard in college and some of my best friends were my uh, college teammates. So he came out to be my assistant at Romulus. So we used to go spend a long weekend or a long, you know, week somewhere before our season started. So we typically start in November. So some years we go two different places. We go to an NBA training camp because they started before college. That was back when college would always start October 15th. Then we go to college. Well, 
you know, like we went to Pepperdine with Vance Wahlberg when his first year there. We went to all, we went all over. So we, we called Wagner when Danny Hurley got the job from St. Benedict's. We thought it'd be cool. Like get Bob Hurley senior, Danny and Bobby, they just left high school, went to college. And so I call Wagner's office to try to set up this, you know, long weekend where we go watch Danny uh, go to work and they don't have a secretary at Wagner. Bobby answers the phone. So, you know, I, I think, I'm guessing you're somewhat similar to the age I am. I kind of grew up watching Bobby Hurley in college. So all of a sudden, I'd never talked to him. He answers the phone. I call Wagner and <laughs> give him a caveat. Listen, we got some players here. You know, we've had, you know, drop two kids go to Michigan, this, that, and the other. You tend to get a college coach's attention a little bit more when you, when you have players associated with you. So they were all open to us coming and watching. And me and Bobby traded messages, but we could never work it out to where Bob Sr. was going to be there when we could get there. So it didn't happen. So they hit it. They, you know, two years later, he's at Rhode Island. Rhode Island had been recruiting one of my kids, E.C. Matthews. They walk in. Preston Murphy had been recruiting E.C. Now all of a sudden Danny's there. So me and Danny built the relationship really well. E.C. committee. I had taken EC out on an unofficial visit. That's the thing, too. Like, I used to drive these kids everywhere and go on a lot of unofficial visits with them. So, you know, Danny Danny was great. You know, he appreciated the fact I took EC out. When EC commits to him, they come out and recruit him. So then me and Bobby got to know each other through that visit. Bobby coming to see me. Bobby gets the job after one year at Rhode Island with Danny. And then Danny and Bobby were both great with me. And, shoot, Bobby hired me as his – top assistant. I mean, I was just hoping to get any assistant job with them. And two years after that, he's at Arizona State and Danny White moves me up to the, you know, gives me the head job at Buffalo. So, you know, I caught a few breaks in life, but yeah, that, that's how I got to, I really reached out to Bobby and Danny first, but that never kind of worked itself out. Then when they recruited EC Matthews, that's how we really got the relationship going kind of during that process. So I know there's probably a lot of young high school coaches uh, across the state of Washington that maybe have aspirations of getting into college. Um, your path, it was exceptional. I mean, it sounds like about three years later, you're a head coach at Buffalo and you make a run in the NCAA tournament. Um, and now you're, you're at an SEC school at Alabama. What would the biggest piece of advice be that you could give a high school coach that, um, maybe really likes what they're, where they're at right there at that moment in time, but has big time goals and aspirations of getting to the college game? So I think the biggest thing is just be the best you can be at your job right now. Now, while doing that, you still need to have some connections. So you better get out and work camps when you can. It obviously helps to have players because, you know, that's the biggest reason college coaches want to uh, associate with you. But I mean, I'll say this, like, when I first took the Rhymeless job, when I was 27 years old and D3 assistant, I would have taken any Division One assistant job anywhere in the country. I mean, it could have been the worst Division One job in the country. I would have jumped just to try to get into that level. As I went through my 11 years as a high school coach, and I see more and more Division One assistants that have to move every year, every two years, they get fired, they bounce, like – I decided that it wasn't going to be me. I didn't want to do that. I had three daughters at the time. I wasn't moving my family, you know, just go bounce all over the country just to say I was a Division One assistant. So I had gotten fairly picky. I had interviewed a couple places and kind of just pulled my name out. I wasn't going with someone unless I was convinced they were going to win. 
And then the only reason we were going to move is because we were moving up, not because we were forced to move because we got fired. So once I kind of got that in my mind, and really Bob Hurley Sr. was an inspiration to me. I mean, this is the guy that's turned down Division One, had jobs to stay in high school. So if this guy can do it and I can build a big-time high school program, I'll be satisfied with that the rest of my life. Well, once I got to that point, then all of a sudden, you know, then I'm off with something. So I think just do the best job you can in the job you're in while at the same time, you know, I mean, if you're going to be good in your craft, you're going to go observe other coaches. Well, build some connections while you go up, you know, go Washington state's got a great coach. They, they run a totally different system than Washington. I know both those guys. I know, you know, both those coaches do a great job, completely different styles though, but you know, go visit them, go visit. There's other small schools in that, in that state that they can go, 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 whatever you can, whoever you want to emulate, go visit them, build a connection with them. And, you know, maybe, maybe you can get in that way. Last question that I want to ask you about is, is more on the technical side of, of where you came up with kind of your philosophy and how you want to play the game. I mentioned, I saw you guys in Boise at the NCAA tournament and you played very fast. And a lot of times you'd have your, your five man bring the ball up the floor and initiate offense. Uh, I think you guys also this year at Alabama were top two or three in the country in, in points per game as well. How did you develop your style of play and then how do you teach it and implement it yeah so going back to high school like I said like once we got to where we were going to take the athletes we had in Detroit and turn them into basketball players and we just did I and mean, we were going at 6 a.m we we're going after school we we're going 12 months year round I, I didn't want to come in and run some type of system that you turn the players into robots that just didn't make any sense if I'm going to get in the gym and develop players I'm going to let them play so we, our big thing is spacing, and we play fast. Like, we're trying to throw the ball ahead. You go make a play. If you can't beat your guy one-on-one, -on -one, then you really can't play for us. Like, if we throw you the ball ahead in the break and, and you've got a one-on-one, -on -one, like, you got to be able to beat him and convert at the rim or spray the ball out off the help and make the read. So I kind of took that philosophy, and the NBA's gone to playing like that now. I mean, shoot, they're all playing fast now. I mean, you look at the pace of playing in the NBA, it's – completely different than what it was when I was growing up and they used to walk the ball up the floor and call set every time down and it's more free flowing now and players are players. It's more of a player's game. So the more player development, the more you enable your players to be aggressive and attacking, you know, that, that fits how we want to play. And that goes back to when I was a high school coach. So we teach it. I mean, we have a ton of training drills, working on skill work and my, my philosophy's changed a little bit from high school. We used to do a lot of cone work, you know, just one-on-zero work. I don't do that much of that anymore. I think you got to do a little bit of that to get a base level of skill work. But at this level, at least in Division One, like, they better come in with a base level of skill work or we probably recruited the wrong type of player. So when we get them, it's all more decision-making, like attacking closeouts every which way, making the reads, where does the help come from, in transition, lots of two-on-one, three-on-two with a guy chasing – so you got to make quick decisions. Can you finish at the rim over size or can you read the help and get it to where it's supposed to be? And then our drills are fast paced. All of our stuff, I mean, we play a 0.5 game, we call it. Like you've got a half a second to decide whether to shoot, throw it one more to the next guy or drive the ball to the rim on a closeout. Like we're not holding the ball. There's no more jab, 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 getting, get, like we're, we don't really play like that. Once we're trying to get one 
break down one closeout, and then we're drive kick, drive kick. We, we're getting at the rim twos, kick out threes, and our guys have drilled it and drilled it and know where the help's coming from and can make the reads. At least that's where we want to get to. That's where we had. When you saw us at Buffalo, that was, that was my third year at Buffalo. That's when we beat Arizona, and we, and we were up 25 on Arizona. And if you remember, we had the kid Jeremy Harris, the six seven lefty yeah. that, with the hair. He towards DeAndre Ayton. But we really started – if you go back to that team, we started two point guards, Wes Clark, Devontae Jordan. C.J. Massenburg was a combo guard that started at the point for the Brooklyn Nets G League team this year, and then a 6-7 two guard. So we were starting four guards. Arizona's starting two bigs. Like, you know, two bigs are going to have a hard time guarding four guards out there. So I think the games move that way. Too. I mean, look at the way the NBA's playing. They're not playing with traditional bigs anymore. Like, I mean, who's the best post-up player in the NBA right now? Like, there's not that many, you know. Yeah. Some of them are, are without of it. You know, they're, they don't have a job anymore. A lot of the good post-up players from five, six years ago. So, the game's changed more to that. You're seeing more. Game. I watched Oklahoma City Thunder close a game out right before the, you know, before this whole coronavirus thing. They had three point guards on the floor to close the last six minutes of the game out. They had – you know, Chris Paul was on the floor. They had Dennis Schroeder on the floor, and they had Shea Gilgis-Alexander on the floor. I mean, they're playing three-point guards all at the same time. So in our recruiting now, I mean, we're telling we, – we need more guards here. When I walked into the roster at Alabama, it wasn't really built that way, but we're getting it flipped around to where we've got a lot more. And if you're going to do that, it helps to have big long guards, you know, to play your two, three, four. Yeah. If you're really going to play four guards like we want to play. Well, I love the way you, you described uh, how you came about your system. I appreciate the time, and I'm, I'm sure there's going to be some coaches uh, here in the state that listen to this and, and look at your coaching path and really find some inspiration and some encouragement from it. So, Nate, I really appreciate the time. I wish you nothing but the best of luck uh, this upcoming season at Alabama. And who knows, maybe there's a contingent of Washington coaches that – try to figure out a way to get to an Alabama football game and, a, and some Alabama practices at some point. So thanks again. Thank and I appreciate all your time. All right. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.